um, drew them to himself, how God has changed their heart and life, maybe a little bit about their life before coming to Christ, the process of coming to Christ and then their life now. And so this week I'm going to invite Rob up. Rob, do you want to use my little headphone-y thing? Okay.
That's awesome. So encouraging, Rob. Let me pray for you. God, thank you for this testimony of a life that you have redeemed and empowered into something beautiful and all of the ways that Rob loves and serves uh, his family, his community, this church, you, God, in ways that are seen and unseen, God. And I pray specifically that you would um, just bless him and Carrie with... uh, what they need spiritually, emotionally, relationally as they step into this new season of foster parenting. Thank you for a couple that has decided to look at the, um, the openness of maybe a new stage of life and instead of defaulting to what works for us and what do we want, has sought you. And out of that has been led to this uh, just beautiful uh, commitment. And we just pray and ask for your richest blessing on them. Amen. Awesome, thanks Ron. We are going to be continuing with the Gospel of Mark this morning. (laughs) On track, though, it looks like, to come in under 80 sermons for the entire book. So there's there's some little update there for you. We're in Mark chapter 15. This is actually the first of two weeks that we'll spend on Jesus' crucifixion and death, and then the third into his burial. Uh, I'm just going to read the passage and then share kind of three reflections that jump out to me from this text. Mark 15, verses 21 to 32. Mark 15, verses 21 to 32. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country. And they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him, and the written charge, sorry, and the written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross, save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. Well, he saved others, they said, but he can't even save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we can see and believe. And those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Now, I know that it might seem like a strange sequence the way things have played out, that as we move through the Easter season, we are right in the middle of Jesus' betrayal and torture and crucifixion and death. But it actually gives us a pretty unique opportunity to connect the sufferings of Jesus to the resurrection and the born-again hope that it can establish for those who, like Rob, decided to turn their life fully over to Jesus. Uh, Today, I just want to highlight three short things within this passage that stood out to me. 
I mean, obviously we could spend probably months on just this section alone and its significance, but I wanted to share three, three things that pastorally stood out to me. The first is this, following Jesus will mean a redirection into something meaningful and real, but something difficult and self-denying. Following Jesus means a redirection into something meaningful and real, but something that is difficult and self-denying. Verse 21 says, A certain man from Cyrene, which is North Africa, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. So Simon and his sons are going into Jerusalem just as the mob that is bringing Jesus and the soldiers out of Jerusalem, out of the city to go to Golgotha to be crucified outside the city walls. So there's, you know, Simon's going in literally the opposite direction that Jesus is traveling. And yet he is forced to stop and repent, which is just a big word that means redirect, turn around, literally do a 180, I'm going into the city, not anymore you're not, you're taking this cross and you're walking all the way to Golgotha, carrying it for Jesus. Now, as one commentary said that I read this week, it would be inappropriate to this narrative to suggest that Simon's taking up of the cross is itself a good example of personally entering into a life, a life of discipleship because he's forced to, right? The text makes that clear. He is made to carry the cross. But Mark's early readers would have found in his action a really striking illustration of the costly nature of identifying with Jesus, of the costly nature of partnering with a suffering Messiah and would have made that connection that, oh, here's, a, here's, a, here's an illustration, here's a living picture of what it means to follow Jesus. I was going on my way with my agenda, maybe a good one, maybe it's fine, I'm not that bad, I'm a good person, I'm a good dad, I got things to do. And all of a sudden, there's a divine intervention. And now I find myself going in a different direction in order to serve Jesus. And that means that the gospel, the central message of Christianity, is an interruption to life as we know it. And this is important because some people think of religion or faith as something of an accessory to one's life. I have my life, and then I look for things that can help me travel faster down the road than I'm going down, things that will help make traveling down the road easier, things that will entertain me as I go down this road, but essentially things that act as a facilitator of the life that I am after. And in this turn here with Simon of Cyrene, we see that the fundamental nature of what it means to follow Jesus is not that Jesus acts as an accessory to your life. He doesn't kind of get integrated into your agenda. You have to take everything that you thought your life is about and as scary as it is and as much faith as it takes to say, I'm actually on the wrong road. I'm going in the wrong direction. And maybe it wasn't even like a bad direction, but it's not the direction that Jesus was going. And in order to follow Jesus, I have to get off this highway and follow him. Simon is asked to repent of his efforts and to turn from his own agenda in order to serve Jesus. 
And this is important because sometimes when Christians talk about taking up our cross or bearing our, our cross, or we all have our cross to bear, what they associate that with is a kind of an elevation of being miserable. That somehow it's a more righteous and godly stance to enter into misery. But the call to take up our cross is first a call simply towards self-denial and denying yourself as the central fixation of your life. And I have met many Christians who are very self-centered, but they're self-centered through the lens of, oh, look at my, how hard my life is, but I'm, I'm suffering for Jesus, I'm struggling for Jesus, but it's still all about them, right? Like they're using it as a way to pull attention on them. And the whole point when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, is Jesus is essentially saying, you need to die to your self-fixation. That's one of the fruits of a sinful heart is that it turns more and more inward so that life becomes more and more about you. And Jesus says, no, you take up your cross and you follow me to become fixated on me. That's not to deny some of the pain and hardships in our life. We'll talk about that in a second. But it's centrally a call to get yourself out of the center of your life. Get yourself off the throne and Jesus on the throne. And secondarily, it means very clearly being prepared, bracing yourself for the truth that the life that Jesus is inviting you into is likely not going to be easy, comfortable, protected. Right? When you have a a, any kind of a guru, a leader, a teacher, and one of their opening gambits is, okay, I have a lot to teach you, I have a lot to show you, I have a lot I need to lead you into, um, but what you're gonna have to do is the, the preeminent commitment is you're gonna have to take up your cross as you do it, which is the cross beam. Jesus wouldn't have carried the full cross, not the, the vertical beam that would have already been installed in Golgotha. He has to carry the cross beam. So if you have someone who says to you, I have a life to show you, but the first thing you're gonna to need to do is take up a symbol of your death sentence. Very clearly, what you're not gonna be able to do is travel down the road 50 miles and say, this isn't easy. This is tough, this is uncomfortable. I thought this was supposed to make my life like better. I thought it was supposed to, I, I thought, what, what are all the benefits that are being accrued to me? Why bother doing this if it's hard? And Jesus wants to make sure we understand that the life that he's inviting us into, we may experience, and often do, seasons of rest and refreshment, but what we should always be braced for is a life that is challenging because we're going against the grain of the sinful patterns of our heart, the sinful patterns of our culture, and we are trying to live into the love of God and the service of our neighbor, which is not a normal way to live. But we're moving in the direction of something that is deeply real and meaningful and vital. And that's important because a lot of people today think the equation for happiness is to go after a life that is easy and comfortable and protected and has all the accessories of life, financially, relationally, materially. If I had all those things, I'd be happy. But just take any moment to study people who have won the game of life and you will realize how miserable and empty they are. Because happiness and joy and vitality doesn't come from a life of ease or a life of comfort. It comes from straining and leaning into a life of meaning and a life that is real and a life that demands that you grow beyond 
your comfort and your status quo. And there is no life that will set you up, not just with an agenda and then God says, there, go do it, but he walks alongside you and he empowers you into that kind of life. But Jesus wants to make sure we understand that life's not gonna be easy, it's not gonna be comfortable. And so we shouldn't feel betrayed in following Jesus and making him Lord of our finances, Lord of our sex life, Lord of our recreation, Lord of our marriage, when all of a sudden those things aren't necessarily easy. But as we press into Jesus and press into faithfulness and confront things that we need to confront, we find ourselves waking up in the morning and being animated because we're part of something big and meaningful and real. The kingdom of God is breaking forth in us, through us, because we're following Jesus. And so we have a joy, and it's not a superficial joy that's just contingent on my life is kind of going really well and all the parts of the machine are working properly and I am experiencing kind of a, a drift in my life of ease. I'm on cruise control. It's a joy that comes from knowing that you are being used by God to bless and serve other people with tangible ramifications positively in this life and uh, in ways that leave an echo and a wake for all eternity. That's amazing. The second thing that strikes me about this passage comes from verse 23, where some, and, and there's debate about whether it's the soldiers offering Jesus the wine mixed with myrrh, or maybe it's the women, which we'll read about soon. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And I think what I want to highlight here is that Jesus shows us the importance of embracing suffering and pain rather than dulling or avoiding it. Um, wine mixed with myrrh has narcotic properties, so it's designed to dull the pain senses. And it was often given to um, those going through crucifix crucifixion for either one of two reasons, either as an act of mercy. So we're not sure whether this act, people have kind of see that Jesus is kind of on the ropes, so to speak, and he might, he's not going to last very long, and he's going through a tremendous amount of uh, physical pain. So they're offering this to him out of a sense of wanting to relieve some of his suffering, take the edge off, so to speak, or whether it really has a crueler intention. Maybe it's being offered by the soldiers because they're kind of like, oh, this guy's in bad shape. He's going to die too quick. We've got to kind of dull his senses a bit so that he's, you know, the crucifixion actually like, takes hopefully a day or two. It would be tragic if this guy just died in a few hours. But either way, what they're offering Jesus is a way out from the pain, is a way out from the suffering. Not completely, obviously, but a way to um, just bear with it in an artificial way. And I think there's something important to be considered here for us as disciples of Jesus. And that is, in his example of rejecting the wine mixed with myrrh, Jesus is teaching us to take up our cross, not to come down from it. Jesus wants us to be people who are willing to move and confront pain and move into suffering and to move into pain. Christianity is not a strategy on how to live a pain-free life. It's way more honest than that. But often, I'm looking for that pain-free life. My, the default position of my heart is, that's what I want. And when it doesn't happen, I get angry at God or I get frustrated. And even as Christians, we can become discouraged when we encounter suffering and pain and hardship because we see it as a threat to our happiness rather than an opportunity to grow in maturity and dependence upon God. 
And in our desire for a pain-free existence, I think the human tendency is to dull or to numb pain. There's lots of ways that we can do this. We can do it through literal narcotics. We can do it through drugs. A lot of addictions start not because of the desire to get high, but to avoid feeling this pain, to avoid facing this situation, to avoid having this difficult conversation. So we can numb ourselves, we can dull the pain or attempt to through drugs. We can do it through overwork or just being kind of frantically busy where we just structure our lives so, we, we, we fill the calendar so full and ratchet up the intensity of our lives so much that from waking up to going down is just one adrenaline rush. And we're just, we just intentionally distract ourselves through busyness. Maybe busy with a lot of good things. Maybe busy with a lot of church work. But we know that we're running from relational pain, from spiritual pain, from emotional pain. Some people use sex. A lot of people use pornography. Some people use shopping. For huge seasons of my life, I've used overeating as a coping mechanism to avoid facing painful, difficult circumstances. And I thought about this week, and one of the questions that I had is like, I kind of played devil's advocate. I'm like, but why shouldn't you try and dull pain? Like, what's bad about that? Like, pain is painful, so why not? If you have an opportunity to kind of lessen its acuteness, why not take advantage of that? And I actually emailed Jim Skelton, who was a part of our church for a while, and then he and his wife moved back to Alberta. But I remember a conversation I had with him after church one time about this topic, and I said, Jim, what did you say about that thing when we were talking about it? Because it was really insightful. And he sent me a little response, and I was like, that's great. I'm using all of it for my sermon. Thank you very much. Because it was super insightful. This is his view, but I think it's incredibly wise. He says, my perspective is to embrace pain because it's there for a purpose. It tells us something is wrong. And trying to mitigate pain, not always, but will probably lead to not mitigating the actual cause of the pain. And so my response to a person that says, maybe Jesus should have taken that painkiller is that Jesus, being the perfect sacrifice, fully embraced his destiny and all that that included. He moved forward with tremendous courage on the cross, determined to fully experience his role as a sacrifice for our sins, fully feeling not only the physical pain, but the social and spiritual pain of separation from the Father. And this establishes Jesus as being the perfect intermediary between the Father and humanity, having fully experienced sin and its effects on the cross. Now, as, as far as for us Christians, pragmatically speaking, I have found, I'm still using Jim's voice here, I have found trying to dull pain reduces my motivation to find a solution to its cause. So if I take a painkiller for a back problem, it doesn't really solve the back problem, and actually sometimes it's enabled me to further damage my back because it felt okay. But on the opposite end, when I have run away from the pain or discomfort that's associated with exercise and training, I've actually just invited more pain into my life. And so I think the best response to pain is to consciously move through it, fully experiencing it while seeking God for its cause, thanking God for the pain experience, which he designed to alert you to the fact that something is wrong. And then I think this is a, uh, this in a good way will haunt me for a long time. He said, I think it's good to view pain from the possibility of not being able to experience it. 
For example, perhaps through a congenital, a congenital insensitivity to pain, SIPA, which is a real condition, which because of self-destructive behavior and no pain to alert the person to that behavior, this condition often leads to chronic infection and amputation of affected joints or body parts. It is actually a terrible thing not to experience pain. And the foremost prayer of a parent with a child that has that condition is that they would experience pain. See, as a Christian, we have to grow in our understanding that pain and suffering and hardship can be a gift from God if it's surrendered to God and we learn how to process it instead of running away from it. Or just very quickly looking at it and then slapping a Bible verse or a platitude and saying, oh, there it is, I'm done. Pain is often a source of deep transformation in our lives. It can break up the ground in our heart in a way that few things can. It can act as a smelling salts to our lives. It causes us to wake up and get real with ourselves and God and other people. And so pain is often celebrated as a good thing, not in the sense that ontologically in the, in the structure of reality, pain and suffering is good. God's going to eliminate those things in a renewed creation. But insofar as God can use them powerfully to change and transform us and to lead to a greater good that wouldn't, even, wouldn't have been possible without experiencing the pain. And that's why the Bible, especially the New Testament, post-resurrection, as people reflect and are led to reflect on the experience of Jesus, one of the refrains is that, as a Christian, you should be excited regardless of the season of life you're in. Even if you're in a season of suffering and hardship, you should be excited because God is at work. And that you shouldn't avoid painful, difficult seasons, painful conversations, painful, difficult decisions. Because the avoidance of pain is something that sometimes is the avoidance of the very means that God wants to do, the very means through which God wants to act dramatically and powerfully in your life. And so don't run from that conversation that you've been putting off for decades. Don't run from turning and facing that wound from childhood. Don't run from that relational rift. Look at your life. Look at the self-destructive behaviors that you're engaging in, maybe that are only known to you and God, and ask yourself, is this being fueled because I'm just too scared to turn and face this pain? And it might be painful to do that, but become aware of all the, the cycle of destruction that you're just inviting into your life perpetually as you seek to dull the pain through any of those means that I mentioned before. Now again, I say this as someone for whom um, numbing pain, band-aiding pain with some spiritual platitudes, praying about it once or twice. I, I'm learning how to confront areas of woundedness and pain in my own life. And there's four things that I'm processing with my wife and close friends to do. I, I think, you know, when you're like, okay, what does that look like, though? How do I embrace my pain? I mean, that, that, can, that sounds a lot like a platitude. How, how to put, put legs to this? I'd say four things. You've got to learn to grieve and lament. You've got to learn to take times consistently to just cry out to God, even if it's for five or ten minutes a day. Pray and pour out your heart to God. Number two is to seek God in a more intentional way. Pray more, read more, read books on what you're going through. Don't, don't just avoid it because it's uncomfortable. Lean into it and say, 
oh, I think I need to read a book on this topic because I'm really struggling with this. I need to pray about it. I'm going to do a word study in the scripture. I'm going to, you know, just really dig into God. Three, seek counsel. One or two trusted friends who you can be completely honest with. It might not be your small group. You might not have that level of trust or honesty, but hopefully you have one person in your life that you can talk to and share with. And lastly is journal. And this is something that I'm not good at, but whenever I do, I'm surprised at how powerful it is to just put on paper what I'm actually, what am I scared of? What am I running from? Why, why do these cycles keep happening in my life? And instead of just trying to stop it, just willpowering myself into better behavior, how do I journal, get it out there so that now I can process it with God and invite him to heal me? And lastly, on the cross, Jesus shows us the magnitude of his love. There's a jeer that some of the religious leaders hurl at Jesus as he's hanging on the cross. He saved others, but he can't save himself. He saved others. He saved his disciples when they were in the midst of the storm in the sea. I remember when he saved the woman who was bleeding and she had the hemorrhage. Saved her. Oh, remember those crowds, the 4,000, another one of the 5,000, all those hungry, hurting people, people lined up. Save them. But look at him now, hanging on a cross, beaten beyond recognition, bleeding out. Who knows how, he's, how long he's going to live? Can't even save himself. What a pathetic king. What a loser. What a pathetic savior. And where they see Jesus' inability to come down off the cross as a testament to his weakness, the Bible proclaims it as a testament to his love. This is one of the core truths that makes the gospel, the central thread line of Christianity, so amazing. He saved others because he didn't save himself. That's how he saved others, by not saving himself. Were he to save himself, he could not save others from a fate far more deadly and worse than storms or illnesses. One commentator said, when you look upon Jesus on the cross, understand that it's not the nails that are holding him fast to the cross. It's the love that constrains him. And he, Jesus, himself taught that whoever wants to save his own life will ultimately lose it. But his, his detractors, the religious leaders, they can't understand that way of looking at life. Jesus came to endure a cross for our sake, not to come down off of one for his own. And so on the cross, Jesus shows us the magnitude of his love and Jesus shows us that true love stays inside of suffering when your suffering is going to lead to someone else's joy. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And to be a Christian is to be connected by the Holy Spirit to the source of that life and the source of that love I mean, that is the love that can animate your life. 
That is the love that can lead you into Sunday, into tomorrow Monday, into your role as a soccer coach and as a nurse and as a financier and doing all these things as a parent and as a friend and as a neighbor. That is a love that can sustain you into those places of hardship and suffering, yes, but that is the love that can lead to resurrection hope where God can do something beautiful and powerful and new for those who place their trust in Jesus and redirect their lives and follow Jesus into his future. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your love. And often we are dulled to it. We are numb to it. The, the, the scriptures wash over us. We've heard this before. I get it. Jesus died for us. Even a simple song like Dennis said, uh, sang so beautifully, Jesus loves me, this I know. That can just become something that we glibly mouth. God, open our eyes to see the magnitude of your love for us. And may it lead us out of self-fixation self and self-centeredness into a life where we are learning every day how to live for your glory and your honor. In Jesus' name, amen.